You are now listening to the March 28th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have biblical stewardship, sermon, and refining faith. First, let's begin with biblical stewardship. Hello everyone, this is Brian Winston with Biblical Stewardship. Last time, we saw how Apostle Paul praised the Philippi church members. The Philippi church members just accepted the gospel that was shared to them. They were thankful for the grace of salvation they received. They sent gifts to Apostle Paul so the grace of salvation could be shared with others. Apostle Paul received the gifts and he was so pleased with the center of their hearts. He then asked God to fill their needs. We talked about how this order should not be changed. In other words, we must not help others to have our needs filled by God. I hope we can remember this. Fifteen years ago, in the year 2001, nineteen years ago, in the year 2001, Russell Chandler wrote a book called The Forces Shaping America's Religious Future, and this was the content. If the church members gave an average of 10% of their income with the increased cost, it could eradicate the world's worst poverty. In addition, for one's own country's need, it could raise $17 billion. Of course, all church activity would be maintained at the current level. This is what Russell Chandler is trying to say. If people who call themselves Christians in America properly gave a tenth of their income, the churches could gather the money and eradicate the world's poverty so there wouldn't be any more starving. After doing that, they would still be able to give $17 billion for U.S. needs. This is with the church still doing all the ministry it has been doing until now without leaving anyone out. Isn't that amazing? The entire world's problem of hunger could be solved by the giving of the Christians in America. Russell Chandler is trying to say that this is how much the Christians in America aren't sharing their income with those in need. Among various surveys, according to the report, of the Barna Group, which is the Christian survey organization, American Christians give 3.4% of their income as an offering. It also reported that only 12% of evangelicals in America actually tithe. Through the book of Acts, we saw that when the first church appeared, the people shared what they had according to the church members' need. Therefore, the Bible said, There weren't any poor people. They accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and as evidence those who received the Holy Spirit had their values changed. When their values changed, their actions changed as well. When the book of Acts mentions the poor, it means those who lack something. In other words, it means Christians who need help. Those who needed help in the first church had their needs all filled by the church members who shared what they had. Of course, this doesn't mean that a church member didn't have a 75-inch TV, so the other church members gathered money and bought a TV. It also doesn't mean that since I don't have a luxury car, the church members will buy it for me. It means they provided the basic things needed to eat and live. Now, what about the church in the age we live in? How does your church look? Aren't there any poor people at your church? As mentioned, it doesn't mean the relatively poor. Are there any church members who have difficulty in their day-to-day living? If we don't take care of these church members, then it's not biblically wrong to say that the church and the church members don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Today is the last session of Biblical Stewardship. 
As we looked into the Word of the Bible through this program during the past three months, what kind of change occurred in your lives? Did your value towards wealth change? Why did God entrust you with wealth, and what does God ultimately want to do with it? Were you able to find out? How we use our wealth is not simply a matter of whether we give or not. There is a more fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is whether or not we're living in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Are we looking at what the Holy Spirit is looking at? Are we thinking what He is thinking? Are we doing what He's telling us to do? Is this how we're living? Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. You shouldn't give if you don't want to. You shouldn't give because you are forced to. God loves a cheerful giver. What does this word in the Bible mean to you? Why does God love a cheerful giver? How can we give cheerfully? As 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, Giving if you don't want to give, or giving because you are forced to, isn't giving cheerfully. If someone says, I don't want to give, but out of decency and because I'll feel sorry and guilty if I don't, I do it, then one is not giving cheerfully. What about someone who says, All right, I'll give a lot today. Whoever wants it, come to me. Is this giving cheerfully? It may seem like it, but this is not what the Bible means about giving cheerfully. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, which are the next two verses. And God is able to shower all kinds of blessings on you. So in all things and at all times, you will have everything you need. You will do more and more good works. It is written, They have spread their gifts around to poor people. Their good works continue forever. A cheerful giver doesn't consider one's act as doing a kind thing. It's not the morally kind act we're thinking of, but joyfully taking part in God's good work. This kind of person fills the need of the poor or those in need. To say it in an easier way, a cheerful giver looks at the things God looks at. Such a giver knows that God helps the poor, those in need of help, and those in need of compassion. A cheerful giver will share the wealth that was entrusted in the place where God's will is. Such a giver pleases God and finds joy in God receiving praise. The purpose of giving is different. It's not for one's own righteousness or joy, but for God's righteousness and joy. Therefore, God loves such a person and will fill that person so one could do more good and kind works. We can cheerfully give what's ours when we're one with the Lord. It's when the Spirit of the Lord is fully within us. After you have given your wealth to others in need, did you feel proud of doing something good? Did you want others to know what you did? Did you want to tell others? Be careful. You didn't give for the Lord, but you gave for your own personal contentment. There are many charity organizations in this world who give what they have, even without knowing Jesus. Your purpose for giving should not be like that. When Christians give, it should completely be for God's glory and for His name to be lifted. Our motive of giving must be out of love for the souls whom God gave up His Son to gain. God gave the life of His own Son to gain souls, and our motive for giving must be out of love for those souls. Through such giving, we must find God's lost sheep and bring them before God. In other words, we must help other church members in need and take part in making disciples of Jesus Christ. Wealth is a valuable tool that's been given to you. Do not be a slave of wealth, but use it to bring glory to the kingdom of God. That concludes today's session of Biblical Stewardship. 
Thank you for listening. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Use the Power. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Well, you guys, I love watching documentaries. Not every documentary, watching those wildlife ones. How about you? Anybody like that? And I remember as a kid watching these and Learning about life. Learning about life is tough. I remember watching the gazelle in Africa and they're just running through the fields and they're getting close to the water pond and this lioness is hiding and jumps out and you do not expect what happens. Jumps on the back of the, of the gazelle, rips it open and the gazelle is there kind of kicking and the lion eats her alive. I mean, it's like, whoa. PG-13, please, right? I was watching one about giraffes give birth. 
<laughs> when that giraffe is born, that giraffe falls like five feet, boom. What an entrance, right? Five feet drop. And then the mom kind of bonks it with her head and that giraffe has to get up and be ready to run because it's at its most vulnerable place in life. Well, when I think of the church and the early church and the birth of the church, I've got to say, when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, it was born and it was on its feet and running. That's the way the church was. And we read about the birth of the church in Acts chapter two, and we're talking about pointing people to Jesus, and we point people to Jesus simply by sharing what we've seen what we've heard and what we've experienced with Jesus. That's what a witness does in court. They share what they've seen, what they've heard, and what they've experienced. And Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So look at Acts chapter two and look at the first verse. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The day of Pentecost, let's just talk about the day of Pentecost. The holiday of Pentecost was celebrating the anniversary, I say the birthday of the giving of the law. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and a total of 613 laws on Mount Sinai, and uh, they are celebrating that event, that historical event. So Feast of Pentecost, it was also had two other names so you don't get confused. It was also called the Feast of Weeks because it was literally 50 days. It would count the weeks until from the first Sunday after the Passover, which was Resurrection Sunday. So 50 days from then was the holiday of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, the counting of the weeks. It's also called in Hebrew, Shavuot, say it. Shavuot, now you're Hebrew experts, right? Shavuot. So this day would be spent... Traditionally, the first day of the holiday would be spent studying the word of God. So here on the day of Pentecost, we have 120 of Jesus' followers, and they are praying, but we also know they're studying the word, and they are waiting expectantly for what Jesus promised. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, and this is what he had told them, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now look at verse eight, just Jesus' final words, his very final words, last words on earth, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the world. So Jesus promised them the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you and he's gonna bring you power my question would be, when? The thing with God is, he'll give you his promises sometimes, he'll speak to you, but he won't say when, right? You know it's the Lord, you know he's promised you, but you're just, he doesn't tell you the when. And so what did they do? Well, we know they were faithful, they were praying, they were expecting, they were hanging together in unity they just didn't know when it was going to happen. But 10 days later, it happened. An incredible event happened. It was kind of like Mount Sinai, where on Mount Sinai, when the law was given, we're told that there was a wind, there was thunder, there was fire on the mountain. And God kind of does that again on this Pentecost, not celebrating the giving of the law, the old covenant, but celebrating the giving of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. Like at verse two, it says, and suddenly there came from heaven 
a sound like a mighty rushing wind. A wind not a real wind, but the sound of a wind. There's a roar, like a hurricane roar. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. That would be cool to see. The room is filled with this roar of wind, the sound of wind, which is a symbol you hear, you can read like three or four times in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit manifests himself that way. So the Holy Spirit, he's very present. And then fire represents the Holy Spirit as well. And I want to remind you of something. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who comes after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, who knows, and with what? Fire. What's happening on the day of Pentecost? They're baptized with the Holy Spirit and with what? Fire. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I don't want to get into a teaching on speaking in tongues. We can do that another time. I just want to stay fixed on this passage, okay? And, and we'll see what this means. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They didn't know the languages they were speaking in. So they're speaking languages they never, ever learned. This is amazing. You know, even if you do know another language, sometimes a lot is lost in translation. You ever play that game where somebody whispers something to you and then you pass it on, it goes through a number of people, you know, it goes through and then the last person uh, says what was spoken to the first person and it's never anything like what was said. You, how many of you know that game? Yeah. Well, that can happen in the same language when it comes to translation. I have taught, preached in other countries, and there have been translators. And you're always praying, God, please give me the right translator, because you know, if I'm animated, I want my translator to be animated. And sometimes I've gotten a translator that way, and it's just been cool. Other times I'm in the translator, and it's always five times longer than when I was said. It takes five, and I'm thinking, what is he saying? You know, is he saying the same thing? You lose it in translation. But here are people speaking languages they never, ever learned. That's awesome. And we'll find out what they're saying here in a second. Now, there were dwelling. Now, they didn't really live in Jerusalem. They were visiting Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Let me explain that. They weren't living there. They were guests. There were three feasts that God commanded every Jewish man to observe in Jerusalem. Passover was one of them. This is one of them, Pentecost. And God says, if you are able and you are devout, you are to come and observe this feast in Jerusalem. So this was the favorite of those three feasts. People liked to do this one. The weather was nice. You know, it was just, this is the feast they liked to go to. So Passover had a lot of people. Jerusalem would swell to say over a million people. But this feast very possibly might have been even bigger so you had people from all over the world. It was very uh, cosmopolitan, multicultural. You'd have Jews from every country, and of course, you would have Jews speaking all sorts of languages. Of course, you would have the four major languages, Latin, Greek, Aramaic is what they spoke in Israel, and then the, the religious language in Israel was Hebrew. So, of course, there would be those languages, but you also had people speaking, you know, they might be from Arabia, they might be from Macedonia, people from all over Crete. And so they'd need translators if they could find them. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, 
verse six, and at this sound, that is people speaking in all these languages, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. It's like, what is going on? See, languages separate people, don't they? They do. I mean, cultures gather around language, common language. Language separate people. Languages unify people. Languages cause prejudice. And so here they were in all their diverse groups, and now they're hearing them talking in their own language. And they're thinking, this is crazy. They were bewildered, verse seven, and they were amazed and astonished. Look at these words, bewildered, amazed, astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? What a put down. Galileans, these are people who live way up north in Israel around the Sea of Galilee, obviously. Galileans were considered to be not the most cultured people, kind of the hillbillies, that might be going a little too far, of the day. Their accent was different. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They couldn't, some people in certain languages can't say certain words in another. You know, some people have a hard time saying R's or something like that. And so you would know a Galilean by their accent and the way they, they kind of swallowed certain sounds. I mean, it's just, they were thought to be ignorant. You know, sometimes when you hear somebody speaking in one accent, you'll think, oh, you know, kind of dumb. No, an accent doesn't make a person smart or dumb, right? But they were, are not all these Galileans? There's no university in Galilee, you know. These people, are you kidding us? That was part of the the miracle. Because this, you know, is a miracle of language. And verse 8 says, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? For instance, these are the kind of people, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and, and Gentiles that had converted to Judaism, those are proselytites, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues, languages, the mighty works of God. We're all hearing it. We're hearing the same thing in a way that we can understand. What are they hearing? They're hearing them talk about Jesus, the mighty works of God. I thought, well, what is that? Well, the mighty works of God in Christ, the mighty works of God in Jesus' healings, in his raising people from the dead, in his miraculous birth, the virgin birth, in Jesus rising from the dead. They're telling the mighty works of God, and everybody's hearing it in their own language. The confusion is gone. Let me say this. God is in the business of wanting people to understand the gospel. It's not hard. I mean, some religions are hard, I have a hard time understanding some. Some world religions I have studied and I still don't get it. You know, it's just hard. And at least they give you several incarnations to understand. You've got life after life after life to try to figure it out. Some I don't get. But Christianity, I get because it's so simple. It's not a religion where I do anything to get saved. God has done it for me and I understand the love of God and sending his Son, Jesus, to die for my sins. And man, it's just uh, an amazing um, good news that we have. And everybody was hearing it. No confusion. God wants it to be clear. And God pulled out all the stops, didn't he, to make it clear. And this miracle of language, it's just phenomenal. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, catch this, What does this mean? What does this mean? Say that. What does this mean? (laughs) I love it. See, the day the church was born, there was such a testimony that people were saying, what does this mean? I think when people look at the church, that's what they ought to be saying, is what does this mean? 
Not, they're crazy. <laughs> not, that's so weird. Or not, what a bunch of hypocrites. And we know, we hear that kind of stuff. And we know it's not, you know, the majority of any of us. But rather, I want the world saying, when they look at me or they look at you or they look at all of us, what does this mean? They love one another. What does this mean? They live honest good lives. What does this mean? What's this about? They take care of people. They do good works. They love on the poor. What does this mean? And that is a perfect setup question. <laughs> I mean, this is like if you want to share Jesus and if you tell your story, what you've seen, heard, and experienced with Jesus if you're sharing that and somebody says, what does this mean? You're going like, oh, right, the fruit is ripe to be plucked off the tree. You say, this is what it means. This is what it means. God loves you. God has a plan for you. Listen to me. This is what I've seen about God. This is what I've heard about God. You know, we said a few weeks ago, this is my story in a way, this is my song. You can't take my song from me, and you can't take my story from me. And you really can't argue about my story. It's my story, and it's my song. But you can listen to it. What does it mean? What does it mean? And I think that's where, where uh, that is the question that we want. And even in teaching, you want people to leave with that kind of question, what does it mean? But there's always the critics. I want you to hear, from the day one, the church had critics. I mean, it's the day of Pentecost. It's not 24 hours, and it says, but others mocked, saying, they're filled with new wine. Oh, please. Oh, yeah, I've known a lot of drunks. I really have. And I've never known anybody so sloshed that then they break out in the language they've never spoken or learned before, right? They might have a language, all right. You know, it's hard to understand. But it's not a language that anybody else can understand. Oh, the critics. What they have, they're always trying to naturally explain something supernatural. To not acknowledge God. Just realize there always have been critics there will always be critics, and we don't judge what God is doing by what the critics say. Amen? Amen. It's just, it's not, it's not about them. You focus on what God is doing, and God is doing this. He's wanting to make the story clear to people, and he wants to use you. Somebody who was speaking the language that was spoken in Libya was just telling their story. And God made it so that person could understand. And God made that person in Arabia come over and, and happen to wander in the right place where the person in, that was speaking Arabian. <laughs> Do you speak Arabian? <laughs> yeah, Aramaic. Or no. Anyway. <laughs> but they hear somebody from Arabia and, and they go and God directs them to the right person. See, as we've seen before, God is just in the business of bringing the right person to you. He's not going to bring somebody that you can't speak to to you. Don't be afraid, okay? You're not going to have to learn another language. God is going to use you and your story to reach other people. Now, Jesus says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses. You're going to share what you've seen, heard, and experienced. But sometimes it's very scary to take a stand for the Lord. And Jesus gave us an impossible task if we did not have his power to do it. I get intimidated. I really do. And it doesn't, there's some situations I really get intimidated in. <laughs> and so do you, I know. Peter, he was real outspoken for the Lord. I mean, Peter would speak up a lot. A lot of times what he spoke up wasn't the best thing to say as you read the Gospels. 
But at one point, Jesus says, everybody's gonna forsake me, and Peter speaks up, and he says, everyone forsakes you, I will never forsake you. And Jesus says, Peter, basically, Satan's gonna shake you down, and you're gonna deny me three times, three times. And sure enough, it happened, didn't it? One, two, three, and after that, Peter felt horrible. But we know that sometime later, after his resurrection, Jesus had a little talk with Peter, and he gave Peter the opportunity to to say he was sorry and make amends, but Jesus had already forgiven him. And Jesus recommissioned Peter and says, okay, Peter, you just go and feed my sheep, all right? I'm just calling you now, you go feed my sheep. So the last person I would think I would choose to preach the first sermon would be him. I would have said, let's get somebody who, you know, says the right things. I'm not sure I'm going to give the pulpit to that person, Jesus might be thinking. But that's not what happens. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And look at the transformation in this man, verse 14. But Peter, but Peter, that's supposed to get your attention. But Peter, him? Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice. This guy's not timid anymore, right? And he addressed them, men of Judea and all Jerusalem. Look, he's in a crowd with people who crucified Jesus or were complicit in Jesus' crucifixion. He's there with religious leaders out there that wanted Jesus dead. He's there with people who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he's standing boldly. He's not hiding away anymore. And he's saying, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So everybody's got his attention. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now what he's doing, look, What he's doing is he's saying, what is happening here is a fulfillment of a Bible promise that God gave hundreds of years ago. God promised that he would pour out his Holy Spirit. But he says, verse 22, men of Israel, bold, 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 men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's boldness, right? That's crazy boldness, because he's pointing the finger at those who crucified Jesus, and he is not mincing any words He's not making it easy. He's not making it soft. But then he says, he makes this bold declaration. And how about reading verse 24 with me? I don't care about your translation. I just think it's so cool. I want to hear it. Lots of us. And let's say it good and loud. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Isn't that cool? Jesus was loosed because death couldn't hold him. Amen? Amen. Death couldn't hold our Lord. There's an Easter passage for sure. Death could not hold him. And he continues to preach a sermon that has fantastic response as the Holy Spirit uh, gives him uh, the power. But it happened because the power of the Holy Spirit came upon him. Don't sell yourself short. Jesus believes that you have a testimony. That's why he says, go and share. The go and share doesn't have a footnote, oh, except you. (laughs) When he says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses, you're gonna be my, 
He's saying, I, you have a story, and I believe you should tell it. It's worthy of telling your story, whatever it might be. Peter is up there now in power. He's a changed man because of what the Holy Spirit did in his life. You can be the same way. In this way, it was Peter <clears throat> in boldness for you and maybe victory in your life. You know, you're just struggling with that same stupid thing over and over and over. You hate it. You think it, you know, get mad at yourself, all of this kind of stuff. You know, you just call out to God, God, I need power. I need power like Peter had. I need power like, like they have in the New Testament. See, guys, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit's in you already. You don't have to pray, give me the Holy Spirit. You don't have to pray that. You're saying, Lord, I just pray to be filled up or to have your spirit come upon me so I can live differently, so I can love. Some people are just hard to love. How many of you know that? Raise your hand. All right. And we're not talking about the person next to us, right? Some people are just stinking hard to love. But Jesus gives us his power so that we can love people, so that we can tell our story to people. God is in the business of clearing up confusion. Hold your place here. And I want you to go to the very first book of the Bible. Very first book. Chapter 11. Just a quick reference here. I know you know the story. A, a bunch of you do. It's about the Tower of Babel. You know that story? Cool story. The whole earth, look at verse 1. The whole earth had how many languages? One language and the same words. But they decided, we're told later in verse 4, they decided, hey, let's do something. Let's work to build this tower, a tower that's going to reach up to God. And we're going to make a name for ourselves. And so they made these mud bricks and in it's in the area of where Iran, Iraq today, um, they made this tower and it was going to go up to heaven and they're going to reach God by what they were doing. Kind of the original false gospel, huh? You had to try to do something in order to reach God. And God says, oh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And God also knew that the way they were headed, they were gonna, it was going to be as bad a world as it was before the flood. So what did God decide to do? It says that, you, you look down here at verse 6. God says, behold, they are all one people. They all have one language, and this is the only beginning of what they will do. Let's look at verse 7. And come, let us go down in there confuse their language so that they may not be able to understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. Here's a curse. I see the word confused confused, confused, dispersed. You see, in view of that curse, what happens on the day of Pentecost is amazing because God is undoing that curse. You see that? You get that? He's undoing the curse. He's getting rid of the confusion. So what was so confusing isn't confusing anymore because God wants us to hear understand and not be confused about the gospel. He wants that to be clear. God, maybe for some reason, you've been confused, confused, confused in your life. But the work of God beginning on the first day of the church is to clear up confusion and make what Jesus can do in your life or the life of somebody you love clear and understandable. That's part of the message of what we learn on the day of Pentecost. God wants to clear up the confusion in your life or the life of somebody you know. 
And God will do that by people telling their story and God will link you to the very right person that speaks the quote unquote language that you speak in your life. You can believe it and trust that he will do that. Let's pray. We thank you for your word, Lord. You are so incredibly good. Thank you for the day of Pentecost. And yet, rather than just see it as, oh, a historical event that just happened at one time, we're not asking to be able to speak in other languages or anything like that, but we're just asking right now that you would give us more power. Amen, gang? Give us more power. Give us a fire. Kindle a fire in our hearts to serve you, to love you more. Let there be a fresh wind in our lives. Freshen us, Lord, and give us opportunities to share our story with people that speak the same language we do so that we can help clear up the confusion that they have in their lives about you, about your love, about what life is all about. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.
on holy ground. Here I bow down. Here I bow down. Here, arms open wide. Here, you save my life. Here I. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Refining Faith. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. This is Sharon Lee with a Refining Faith. It is hard to believe that today is the last episode of a Refining Faith. When we first started this program, we talked about how the word refining makes us think of a difficult and painful process, also how God's refining is something we would want to avoid if it is all possible. But that is our feeble thoughts. We share that the Bible teaches us to accept the refining in our lives with a gladness. I hope that we would study what God's refining is and what God wants to accomplish through the refining process from this program, Refining Faith. My hope is that we trust in the Lord refining and have a renewed heart to accept His refining with gladness, as the Bible teaches, rather than to avoid it. How about you? Do you have a renewed heart? Since this is the last episode of a Refining Faith, I would like to go over and revisit what the refining is. The definition of the word refining in Bible is used as a hardship, test, discipline, or verification. In Hebrew chapter 12, verse 11, it is said, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful 
but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The verse tells us that those who have been refined will bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Along with this, we can see the refining also includes discipline as well. In this generation, people regard that human rights is whatever they want because they respect the personality of the individual too much. Recently, it has been issued parents allow their children to do whatever they want and not willing to punish or discipline them. There are children who run around in the restaurant or other public places, those who cause serious inconvenience to other customers, those who bully fellow students as a group, and even those who talk back to teachers and use physical violence against them. There are parents who blatantly yell at others saying, don't you dare discourage my child rather than disciplining them. Is this really the best way for their children? Is allowing your children to do whatever they feel like the best way of loving them? The Bible does not say that at all. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 13 and 14, it is said, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. It is true love and what parents must do to save their children from Sheol, even if they have to discipline them with a rod. That is why it is said as followed in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 6 to 8, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. When God disciplines us, it is because we are his own children. He disciplines us because he accepted us as his own children. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed the best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. That is why we ought to take God's discipline as something to be encouraged about, just as we accept our human parents' discipline with respect and trust. God's refining is something we must accept even at higher level. Also, God's refining allows us to be humbled with humility and to have a gentleness. God freed the people of Israel from the slavery in Egypt and brought them to the wilderness to teach them to lower themselves. He allowed them to go hungry and allowed them to go thirsty. He allowed the worst to happen and allowed them to go through the process of waiting. Through the, all these steps of refining, God taught the people of Israel to learn that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by everything that comes out of the mouth of God. Through God's refining, our personalities change and become someone that God wants us to be. We looked at how the refining verifies or proves our faith. We discussed the reason for refining the gold in the fire is to burn off any impurities other than the gold itself. But it is also to verify that the gold is a true and pure gold. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. These verses are from Romans chapter 5 verses 3 and 4. When believers face tribulations during the spiritual journey, they endure those tribulations, trusting that this happened because God allowed it to the believers who have verified or proven their faith, the assurance, and the hope about the salvation. Believers with faith will endure through, and believers without faith will walk away. That is why in the book of James chapter 1 verses 2-4 to 4 says, 
Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's refining is His way of developing us perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing, because He loves His children. That is why nothing can happen outside of God's sovereignty or outside of His power. That truth allows us to accept any refining that is allowed to us with gladness by trusting God to the end. My hope is we will all have the gentleness God wants us to have by enduring the refining process He allows us to go through by refining faith. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changes e s not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Great is. 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.